Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. That's in Isaiah. Uh, hundreds of years before Jesus was actually born, um, we know that this verse was a prophecy of his birth. Uh, Matthew 1.23 makes that very clear for us. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And that is in reference to Jesus being born, the Virgin Mary. But in Isaiah chapter 7, the conversation is between the prophet and King Ahaz. King Ahaz is not a good guy. One of the many not good guys in the, among the kings. So he was not a godly man, but the Lord was wanting to speak to him and give some assurances. And he didn't need to go make ungodly alliances, but that God would be with them in their crisis. And so the prophet says, the Lord has said to you, incredible, gracious offering of the Lord to an ungodly king, ask the Lord for a sign and he will, he'll answer it just so you can know that God is with you and you don't have to trust in other people. And so he put on his best hypocritical face that he could, put on the mask and said, well, you know, um, I hear you're really not supposed to test the Lord, so I don't want to ask for a sign. Well, the, it's hypocrisy because it had nothing to do with honoring the Lord and doing the right thing because his whole life was marked by doing the wrong thing. But he didn't want to give up the alliance that he had with another power and start trusting in the Lord. And so we get verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not going to ask for it, then God's going to give it to you. And here it is. Now, here's the interesting thing about prophecy. Many of the prophecies, not all of them, many of the prophecies had both a near fulfillment in the day that it was given and a future fuller fulfillment, uh, oftentimes regarding the person and the work and the life of Jesus Christ. This is one of those occasions. How do you know for certain well, if the New Testament picks up an Old Testament passage and says this is a fulfillment of it, you're on really solid ground right there, right? And that's what we have here. But the prophecy that he gives to Ahaz is that, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel, or God with us. So it was a fulfillment that was going to take place in Ahaz's day. What was that? Well, when we read the word virgin here, it can also be translated, and most often is translated, young maiden. Now, time out. Some people will hear that and they'll think, oh, he doesn't believe in the virgin birth. I absolutely believe in the virgin birth. Um, but how do you have a fulfillment in Ahaz's day without it being another virgin birth and then the virgin Mary? And so Isaiah, led by the Holy Spirit, used a word that could speak of young maiden, which could certainly also carry the idea of what? Being a virgin. So whoever this young woman was that was going to bear a child and whose name was going to be Emmanuel, we don't know. But I am confident Ahaz knew because God is speaking to Ahaz. Now, we don't have this recorded in Scripture, so we trust and have faith that God fulfilled this. But certainly Mary was a virgin in the fullest sense. Yes, she was a young maiden, but she also was a young maiden who was a virgin. But for Ahaz, there was a fulfillment that took place in his day that would have told him that said, God's with you, man. <laughs> He's with you. 
Why are you trusting in other people and other alliances when you can be fully trusting in the Lord? So we'll just end that kind of background thought right there. At the end of the study, we're going to come back to it. So as we come to these passages, some of what we'll be reading, we're all reading right now, we're singing the songs. They're passages that we're familiar with, Christmas passages that teach us of the amazing works of God, the incarnation. Now, the, incar- the word incarnation is a theological word that speaks of God becoming man. That was fulfilled almost 2,000 years ago when the Virgin Mary gave birth to Jesus there in Bethlehem. And that is w- when the incarnation happened. Of course, there was a conception that was miraculous when the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and um, this child began to grow within her. But the incarnation says, among other things, that man is without God. It's, it makes a negative statement. If God is coming to be with us, then it means that he is not with us. Now, that's not the way it began. We've been going through Genesis. And what do we see in Genesis? In Genesis, we see that the Lord created Adam and Eve. And that he would come... And he would have regular fellowship. He'd come walking in the cool of the day. And there was this communion. There was this fellowship. After Adam and Eve's sin, that was broken. And now we find not Adam and Eve waiting for that engagement, but hiding in the bushes because of their shame of their sin. Jesus, or The Lord said, in the day that you eat of the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And physical death did come. And began to touch humanity. Not God's original plan, by the way. All this sickness and this disease and death. That's not part of God's original plan. That's a result of sin. Sin brings death. But not just physical death. It also brought spiritual death. And there was this separation. And now they do not have what God had intended for them to have. But he's wanting to remedy that. Even there in the garden again. That very first prophecy. That the seed of the woman would... uh, would, uh, would crush the head of the serpent with his heel. That's a reference to the seed, Jesus, of the woman Mary who defeated Satan and reversed the curse. The Lord is coming to fulfill that very first prophecy. And you can just see how that one prophecy in its granular form, which doesn't have a lot of detail to it, is just being expanded as we make our way through the Old Testament to the point now where we are being told what city he's going to be born in. And we're told that it's going, he's going to be born to a virgin. I mean, great detail is given. But you know, when we talk about man being without God, we still see that today. Now, those of you who have put your faith and trust in the Lord, you have that fellowship with Jesus Christ. You have that communion. You have that opportunity to walk with Him. But the cries of those who do not have it are heard all around us. The cry of loneliness. The cry that, that's looking for fulfillment when people have maybe everything, humanly speaking, you could want. People that lack a purpose in their life. And, and it's a thirst. Not a physical thirst. But it's that spiritual thirst that Jesus talked about. said, if you're thirsty, come to me and I will give you living water. I will satisfy that within you. And so this is why the incarnation took place was the Lord was coming to be with mankind. And when man is connected with his maker, which he was created to have fellowship within, now he can have fulfillment. 
Apart from that, man without God is not a man or a woman that is full. Here's, let me give you a theological definition for the incarnation. It's a quote from, and I'll give you a couple of these quotes as we go here. The word incarnation means in flesh and denotes the act whereby the eternal Son of God took to himself an additional nature, humanity, through the virgin birth. The result is that Christ remains forever unblemished deity, which he has had from eternity past. But he also possesses true sinless humanity in one person forever. That's the incarnation. You had the divine and the human natures being fused together in one person, Jesus Christ, and he is the first and only God-man. It wasn't that the Holy Spirit just found a good you know, man and, and took up residence in him. No, it's that there are these two natures that came together. Don't think of, so he had two personalities. No, he's one person. He's the God-man. And how all of those that, you know, uh, intricacies worked out, we just don't know. Great is the mystery of godliness, right? But we know this is what we are taught and is what is true. But what I, is there in that last line is that in one person forever. Did you know that? Have you contemplated that? I'll give you scriptural evidence of this in just a moment. But have you ever contemplated this idea that Jesus, when he ascended back to the right hand of the Father, didn't shed humanity? He retained humanity. He is forever that God-man. It's an eternal union that took place. What an incredible teaching. God becoming flesh. Who is this? God, the one who created everything. The one who sustains everything. The one who existed for all of eternity past. The one who enjoyed all the glories and all the splendor of that heavenly abode. This is the one that we're talking about. And he comes and dwells among us. When the incarnation took place, it was teaching us that God loves us. Now think about this. How does the incarnation, God becoming, becoming human flesh, how does that instruct us that God loves us? I mean, we can look at the cross and say, yeah, the cross tells us that he loves us because he sacrificed himself for us. But why the incarnation? <laughs> well, because he is coming and he is humbling himself and taking on human form. Now, we look at this and say, well, what, but we're made in the image of God. That is true. We are made in the image of God. But we are not God. We are made in the image of God. It would make sense that Jesus would come as though, and, and, you know, as a man, because we've been made in the image of God, and He's coming to redeem mankind. So it makes sense. Man must atone for his sin, but none of us or all of us together could not atone for our sins. So a sinless, spotless sacrifice had to be provided, and so He was born of a virgin, and He came to atone for our sins. But it is a step down to become a, a man. Now, he didn't lose his divinity, as that quote said, unblemished in his deity. But nonetheless, he took on humanity. How humbling. I mean, it is a tender, warm story for sure to think about the Christmas story. We think about the angels singing. We think about the shepherds. 
You can imagine the looks that Joseph and Mary had. They both had had angelic experiences affirming this to be true. You can imagine as that child was born that they sat there and they're like, what now? I mean, I remember saying that with our firstborn, Tyler, when we brought him home. I, I was amazed that they let us bring him home. Was anybody else first-time parents? Were you ever amazed? It's like, they just let us walk out the door? Like, we just walked out the door and took this child home and we put the child there. I'm like, now what do we do? I guess we got to wait, you know? <laughs> it's like, but could, could you imagine, though, having the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the thing we just saying about, all these truths were in their mind, but they were so alive. They were so anticipated. And they're like, so this is him. Imagine the, the feeling they must have had. And it is a warm, wonderful story of salvation and hope and love and faith and faithfulness and fidelity. But it's also a story of humility. Because the, the second person of the Godhead took on human flesh. And Scripture talks about this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. Now here's the great thing about the Word of God. We're talking about the incarnation. We're using big words here. We're going to talk about the hypostatic union in just a moment. You're like, what? We'll get to it. But it's all very practical. When Paul taught about the incarnation, he used that moment to talk about how we ought to treat each other. So I made the statement, the incarnation speaks of God's love for us. Here it is. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being of the, in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. The cross being the worst, even that kind of a death he endured. We're told to look out for each other. But, you know, there might be a thought, well, I've got my own needs to consider. I mean, I, this person is beneath me. I'm above them. Whatever it is that we think, I don't have time. I don't have money. And Paul says, well, I want you to keep something in mind as you look out for each other and you seek to serve one another. God has done this to you, and God became a man. He was equal with God, and yet he humbled himself and took the form of a bondservant to serve us. We, therefore, ought to serve one another. So the, the question or the statement, the incarnation speaks of God's love. How? Because he took on human flesh that he might come and serve us and even go to the cross for us. There's no cross if there's no incarnation. And so it's that same statement of God's love to redeem us. But practically, it teaches and it instructs us that we ought to serve one another. Well, why should I serve her? I mean, she doesn't do her fair share around her. I work hard. I do this. Why, why should I serve him? You know, I shouldn't have to serve him. You know, they, he never picks up. He never does this. Or why should I serve this part of the, the body of Christ? Let the parents take care of it. Because Jesus came in human flesh to serve us. Therefore, we serve one another. We look out for the interest. It's proactive. It's not just reactive, right? This whole passage, it's, a, it's, it's proactive. I am looking out, wanting to find where the need is, that I might go and meet the need, because that is what is exemplified in the life and the coming of Jesus Christ. 
He was looking out for our interests, and he says, ah, they've got to be redeemed. They need a redeemer. They need somebody to be a go-between. I will take on human flesh and take on a body to atone for their sins. And he came and he served us this way. And so the incarnation, very practical instruction on how to love each other because it teaches us how God loved us. Think of it in terms like this. This is not a perfect illustration, and I get it. But imagine if today you were to decide because of some opportunity that would be provided to glorify God that you had to go back and become a baby all over again. Now the good news, none of us have any recollection of that, but we all know what it's like. So you're going to go back to the diapers, you're going to go back to being fed, you're going to go back to you know, being nursed and have a bottle and all things doting on you and getting dressed up like a little you know, toy and um, all the things that go on and you're like, okay, you know, well, yeah, it's not forever. I'll, I'll go ahead and do that. But wait a minute. The incarnation was what? Forever. Jesus took a huge, huge step down. When, in that imperfect illustration I just gave you, we're talking about humanity going back in time to the earliest days of their humanity. That's, and that would be a humbling experience to go through. But that's not even fair because we're not talking about humanity going back to humanity. We're talking about the divine taking on humanity. There's a big difference. Now you say, well, I'll do it for a time. Yeah, that'd be fine. I mean, I'll grow again. Oh, but what if you had to stay in that state forever? Jesus, at the right hand of the Father, is fully God and fully man. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 6. I told you I'd give you a verse for it. Here it is. Hebrews 5, 6. As he also says in another place, and he's speaking of Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. What's that order? It's, a, it's an earthly order. It's an order of a man who served. And so Jesus forever is a, according to that order of Melchizedek. And this is what, another quote for you, it says, The hypostatic union may be defined as the second person, the pre-incarnate Christ, came and took to himself a human nature and remains forever undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person forever. So, the hypostatic union is, is those two natures coming together. The incarnation is just, you know, in the flesh, God in the flesh. Whereas the hypostatic union is talking about that process of those two natures coming together. Um, so this is what the Lord has done. So it speaks to us of his love for us. The opportunity to minister says, yeah, I'll take on human flesh. And he knew. He knew what that was like. He knew the limitations. He had seen all of the, the failings of a human body and all the fightings of, of the nations and people down through the ages and all the evil that could be done, and he knew that it was all going to happen to him. And he says, I'll take on that body because I love them. So the incarnation speaks to us of God's love for us, but the incarnation revealed God's nature to us. In John 1.14 it says, And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. So when you behold the glory of God, what does it look like? What does it look like when you behold the glory of God? It looks like seeing a person that's full of grace and truth. So let me ask you, have you ever been touched by the grace of God? 
Have you ever had a moment in your life where you're like, I can't believe God's grace? Maybe even as we were singing about the incarnation. Have you ever been blown away about the truth of the gospel and that God instructs you and teaches you? Have you ever had those experiences? You know what that experience was? That was an experience with what? The glory of God. I mean, it it is truly a spiritual experience. It is an amazing experience. But sometimes I think we get the idea of the encounter with the glory of God having to have some kind of um, otherworldly physical experience going on of, you know, things trembling and lights flashing and, and, you know, wind blowing and rocks splitting and waves opening. And, well, it can be all that, but that's that's just the circumstances of it. The real core of the glory of God is seeing that he is full of grace and truth. Make a big deal about it when you understand something about the nature of God. Have you ever had a moment where you've been blown away at the patience of God? Lord, I can't believe how patient you are. That's the glory of God. Look it up. I'm not taking the time to go into it, but look up when when Moses asked to see the glory of God. It's in Exodus. Look it up on your own. Read it. And then once he saw the glory of God, listen to his description. It's actually the same one that, that Jonah refers to. It's repeated often. So he's, John saw Jesus, and at the end of his life, he says, man, when we saw Jesus, the, the flesh dwelt among us, the incarnation, we saw the glory of the Lord, and he is full of grace and truth. So what do we learn about the nature of the Lord? Well, first, everything Jesus did was full of grace. Everything he did was full of grace. Grace is God's favor, his blessing upon undeserving people. And so whenever Jesus worked, whenever Jesus moved, it was full of grace. Everything Jesus said was full of truth. Jesus was gracious and Jesus was true. This is our God's nature. He's truthful. I think it's particularly important for us to kind of emphasize and refresh ourselves in the fact that there is truth that we can know. And God sent his son Jesus to give us truth. We live in a truthless generation. And people are saying, well, you know, you really can't, you know, speak dogmatically about biblical truth or even, you know, truth because her truth may not be his truth, which may not be hers, which may not be his. But they're all true. And they can be in contradiction of e- with each other. But if that's his truth, then that's true. But what if it's not true? What if it's wrong? Well, no, no, you can't say that because everybody's truth is true. Well, I disagree with that. And then they will tell you confidently and absolutely that there is no truth. Are you sure about that? Oh, I'm certain. Well, they can't even hold their own philosophy without having a belief in truth. So it is a, it is an, it's a philosophy that's a, it's a wet paper bag. And you can feel happy about your wet paper bag until you try to put anything of value in it. And then it's just going to rip through and it's going to tear out. And it doesn't work in the real world when your life is falling apart. But Jesus is not like that. Jesus is truth. And everything he had to say about life and how to deal with sin and how to deal with each other and how to come to God and how to, to, to have eternal life. He's full of truth. Come to Jesus. You don't have to continue to spin your wheels, you know, throwing darts in the dark In life, hoping you hit something because the light of the world has come and he says, I only speak and share those things with you and do those things that the Father tells me to do. What Jesus said 
and what Jesus did is exactly what heaven thinks and does. And you can have a confidence in that. I mean, for some, I know for some of you, most of you in here, you're already there. That's, your, that's how you live your life. But I want you to know that the enemy is working hard and he is working overtime to undermine the truth of Jesus Christ. And he is, listen, if you don't think he's being successful, then you're blind. He is having, there's a spirit of success, dark success that he is having inside of the church to pull people away from the timeless truth of the Word of God, the teachings of Jesus. I'll give you one example that is so common. Jesus said, here's the truth. You want to follow me? You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But what's the truth that people live by today? Deny themselves? No, that's deny themselves. That's a sin to them. How could you possibly deny who you are and the urges and the feelings and the thoughts that you have? If you do that, you're not being true. But see, Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, but the world says what? Indulge yourself. The, 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 Jesus said you're going to find life if you die to yourself and you live for me, not if you live for yourself and don't live for me. There's one area where that truth is being undermined. And so Jesus came and he says, I am gracious and I am truthful. We see this throughout the Gospels, don't we? How we dealt with people time and time again. This past Wednesday night, one of my favorite accounts of Jesus in the Gospel is when this notable sinner, this woman, comes to Jesus while he's having dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And she comes up to him and she's overwhelmed by his love and his grace and his truth. And she comes up and she begins to weep in the house of, 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 of Simon. She begins to weep upon his feet. She lets down her hair and she begins to wipe his feet clean. Why? Because Simon didn't clean his feet, didn't offer the opportunity. She came in, she immediately picked up on him with her tears. She began to wash his feet and wipe his feet and then anointed his feet with this oil. And Simon's freaking out. He's like, oh, see, I knew he wasn't the real deal. If he was a prophet, he'd know this woman is a terrible woman and she's a sinner and he wouldn't even let her touch him but wait a minute this is why Jesus came was to touch sinners was to touch people and make them whole you know the world and the philosophy of the day was that God wanted nothing to do with sinners and yet God was in the flesh to to bring sinners to himself and make them holy everything Jesus did was full of grace and truth or the woman caught in adultery what an embarrassing, sinful thing, but what an embarrassing thing. Dragged out, caught in the very act, it says, and brought out in front of Jesus. And they were all saying, the Bible says, the law says that whoever commits adultery should be stoned. Well, where's the man? The man's not present. It was a setup. They caught her. She was in the act. She was sinner. Jesus is going to acknowledge it as so. But Jesus began, he stooped down and began to write in the sand, didn't he? And as he wrote in the sand, it says... All of them, from oldest to youngest, departed one by one. Why did they depart? Was it because of what he was writing in the sand? I think so. Maybe he, was, maybe he just began to list some sins out. You know, began to write some things. Who, who knows what he did? But whatever he did, it caused them all to depart one by one. And when they were all gone, Jesus said, Woman, where's your accusers? She goes, I have none. He says, Neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Gracious, but true. 
Holiness is how we live. But he was willing to show grace. So the incarnation speaks to us of his love. It reveals his nature, that he is true, that he is gracious. And the incarnation reveals God's intention. What was his plan for rebellious mankind? I'll give you four quick points. Number one, he came to save. God's intention was to save mankind. Matthew 18, 11, for the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. This is why he came, was to redeem and to save. Or Matthew 20, 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus came to redeem mankind. Simon doesn't get it. The Pharisee who's having this conversation in his mind about how terrible of a man Jesus is to have anything to do with this woman. He was fulfilling the very purpose why he came. He's condemning him, but the purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of what the prophet Isaiah said that a, a, a virgin would give birth to this, to this child and it would be God with us, he's clueless. He's lost it. Jesus came to save. Secondly, the incarnation reveals God's intention to bring us abundant life. John 10, 10, the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I have come that they may have life and that they may have it more abundantly. Where was Jesus when he said that? When he says, I've come that they might have life. Was he standing in a cemetery? Was he kind of promising, I'm about to raise a bunch of people from the dead. That's my, my goal. I'm the resurrection and the life. Is, is that where he spoke that? No. He, it wasn't that. He was speaking to living people. And he's saying, I want people who are alive and drawing breath to actually live life. And not just to have a get-it-by kind of a life. I want them to have an overflowing experience of the joys of life. So Jesus came to save, but Jesus came to give you and me and us, mankind, an abundant life. Not a just get by, just scraping along the bottom. I mean, we're not going under, but man, we're just, we're just kind of bouncing off the, you know, the surface of the earth, ready to just crash and burn it. That's not God's intention for us. He wants us to be those that are full of joy and peace. He came to bring abundant life. Number three, he came to shepherd us. Matthew 2.6, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Jesus. He's the one that came to shepherd. A shepherd is one who looks out for the well-being of his flock, the day-to-day needs. You know, the deist would say that God created this earth, created mankind, kind of said, here you go, here's everything you need to have a great existence. Now, away with you. I'm going over here. Don't call me, I'll call you, probably not. That's, that's the religion of the deist, right? That's the God of the deist, an uninvolved creator. Well, our creator came to save. He came to give an abundant life. But it's the shepherd point that really tells us of the daily involvement. Any shepherd knows that you've got to attend to that flock daily. You don't just walk away. That's why the shepherd would sleep in the pen with the sheep. They, they need to be constantly cared for and looked after. Their food, their water, their health, their safety. Sheep are mainly 
you know, dependent upon others. There's a lot of animals that are self-sufficient. Sheep are not one of them. And Jesus calls us his sheep and that he's the good shepherd, which is this. He wants to lead your life. He wants to be with you through the ups and the downs of life. He wants to, to be with you in the valleys. He wants to take you by the still waters. He wants to take you in the green pastures. And he wants to bring comfort to you. And he wants to drive off the enemy. The Lord is your shepherd. And nobody has to help you get to him. The shepherd is near to you. Believer, I mean, the shepherd is near to you. He dwells within you. And all you got to do is call upon him and wait upon him and look for his guidance and his leadership in your life. Well, I've done that and he didn't show up. Keep waiting. The psalmist says, all day long, Lord, I've waited upon you. Make it the determination that you will wait until he shows up. I will go nowhere, Lord, until you show up and you give me guidance and you give me direction. I believe in you to not only save me and to give me an abundant life, but to actually lead me through this life. He will do that and he wants to do that. I mean, listen, I'm giving you a list around number three of the incarnation revealing God's intention. Each one of these intents of God begins with the word come. Come to give my life. Come to give more abundant life. Come to shepherd. You can make a long list on your own. Go through the New Testament and look up the word come as it relates to Jesus in the Gospels. Maybe you can add a longer list. But the last point I want to bring to you is that he came to instruct. We can make that a subset of shepherding if we wanted to. I just have it as our fourth point. Mark 1.38, but he said to them, Let us go into the next towns that I may preach there also, because for this purpose I have come forth. What purpose? To preach to teach, to instruct. God wants to give you wisdom for your life. And when he had the opportunity to stay where the ministry was growing and flourishing and the big crowds were, he's like, no, we need to get out of this town because there's a little village down the road that hasn't heard. Now listen, some of you have been to um, Israel. Some of you have a sense of the layout of Israel. But when you are around the Sea of Galilee where most of Jesus' took, uh, ministry took place, it's this tiny little place, folks. I mean, it's just this tiny little place. You look down on like 90% of his Galilean ministry where his headquarters was, and you can see it just with a glance of your eye. Tiny little villages. And Jesus, God in the flesh, says, I've got to go to the next little town because there's people in there that probably nobody knew about and very few people cared about. And he says, I've come to teach them. And Jesus wants to be your teacher. And he wants to instruct you. All of these things Jesus came to do when he came to earth. But here's the good news. He still wants to do these things. He's still doing these things. When Jesus left and ascended to the right hand of the Father, he told his disciples right before this happened, he says, listen, I'm going to go away but I'm sending a helper, another helper. It's beneficial to you that I go away. When he said another helper, there's two words in the Greek language for another. One is of similar kind. One would be of the same kind. So, for example, I could say, hey, could you get me another chair? And you maybe walk out there and you grab a metal chair and you bring it in. I'm like, no, 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 no. Another chair, just like the chair that you're sitting in. 
That, so you can have the same kind or one that's similar. When Jesus said, I'm going to send you another helper, he's saying, I'm going to send you the same kind, and he did. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Godhead. He is present with you. He dwells with you. Jesus said it was better that he would go away, that the Holy Spirit would come, that he might be with all of us. Listen, if Jesus was still here, he would be in one location with me. I mean, isn't the way we all think of it, right? I mean, when you, well, if Jesus was still here, clearly I would be with him, right? Yeah, I mean, we're always at the front of the line with Jesus. When I'm in heaven, when I picture myself in heaven and worshiping, I'm not in the back of the room. I'm up front. I've got like a perfect front row seat looking at Jesus. And, and this is what the Holy Spirit is teaching us, is that we have this closeness of proximity to him. But we have that today because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. And so he's your shepherd, and he's your instructor, if you're willing to hear his teaching, if you're willing to wait. He wants to give you abundant life. But you know, not everybody comes. That's what Ahaz did. He didn't come. Ahaz, I want to give you a sign. I'm not interested. I got things. I'm doing it my own way. I actually got an alliance that's going to help me deal with the problems of the nation. God, we really don't need you involved. Well, Ask for a sign. Well, no, 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 no. You know, I don't want to test you. He was pushing him away. And the Lord said, well, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. That you should call upon me. That I am here for this nation. God with us. Ahaz had to make a decision. First century Israel had to make a decision about Jesus. But we've got to make a decision here about Jesus as well. I realize most of you have made that decision to follow. But maybe some of you are not following Jesus. You've been living this life, and man, the idea of being lonely and not having an abundant life, looking for purpose, man, you know that ache well. Listen, you were created to have a relationship with Jesus. If you will come to him, he's already come for you. You can experience the gifts and the blessings that he wants. You've got you to gotta call upon him as a savior. You've got to acknowledge your need for salvation. But if you will do that, he will give you everlasting life. And he'll give you life during life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. Lord, we thank you for the way that you work and you move in our midst. All of us, most of us in here have had that day when you came and you drew us to yourself. Where we had that beautiful breaking experience of realizing that we were not saved, but that you are here to save us. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that again. You would work in the hearts of people who don't know you, but just like me, so desperately need you. So, Lord, would you save? Would you draw people to yourself even in this very hour?